I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of the Future of Storytelling. Welcome back to the FOST podcast. Today, we've chosen to re-release one of our favorite early episodes. This is my interview with master storyteller, Brian McDonald, who in addition to being a screenwriter, director, and teacher, is the author of the essential books, Invisible Ink, The Golden Theme, and Ink Spots. Brian is also the chief storyteller at Belief Agency in Seattle and hosts the popular podcast, You Are a Storyteller. It's always a treat talking shop with Brian. He's an expert on narrative structure and a deep thinker about the inner workings of stories. His books are required reading for new hires at Pixar, and he's a regular teacher of storytelling at major studios like Disney, New Line Cinema, and Industrial Light and Magic. I've had the pleasure of personally working with Brian as he's a featured expert in the FOSS curriculum, which we offer to companies around the globe to help educate their employees on storytelling in the digital age. Beyond all that, Brian is a remarkable human being, a personal mentor, and someone I'm proud to call a friend. So please join me in welcoming Brian McDonald to the FOSS podcast. Welcome, Brian. It's great to be here with you today. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Charlie. So, Brian, you have been studying, living, breathing stories your entire life. Can you tell me why are stories important and where do they come from? Story is an interesting thing because I hear the word thrown around a lot. Most people don't have a working definition of story. So the definition of a story is stories are the telling or retelling of a series of events. Um, that's a dictionary definition. I, I, I actually add to that definition um, leading to a conclusion, meaning having a point. But what stories are for, if you think about it, there's never been a culture anywhere in the world throughout time, uh, throughout culture, there's never been anybody who, uh, any group that hasn't told stories. So we all tell stories, every one of us, every culture, every time. So if that's true, uh, which it is, um, then it must have been selected for, right? The, the people who don't tell stories are not here, right? So it must have been selected for. It must have been uh, something we needed. And so uh, I believe that stories exist to pass on survival information. There are a lot of clues to this, and one of them is that uh, every writing teacher will tell you that stories need conflict. So uh, looking at that for a long time, I, I realized that stories need conflict because conflict is the thing we need to learn how to survive, right? So that's, they're inherently interesting because that's with conflict, because that's what stories are for. So, so what's a good example of uh, how stories help people to survive? So there's all kinds of survival, right? There's, um, there's cultural survival or emotional survival. Um, a lot of 12-step programs, things like that, are helpful for emotional survival, right? So um, you hear somebody else's story or you, you tell your story and uh, there's some emotional survival that happens there. So, so uh, there are all kinds of survival. So don't, uh, don't get hung up on the, um, on the physical uh, nature of survival. But having said that, there, there are a couple of stories that, that, I, that I like to, um, to use to illustrate this idea. And one of them is um, 
that big tsunami that was in Asia, was this now 10 years, maybe 12 years ago, whenever it was? I think it was 2004, right? The one that hit in uh, Asian tsunami, yeah. Yeah. So that tsunami, um, so um, there are these people uh, called the Moken. And the Moken, um, they, um, they have this story that's been passed down from generation to generation about what a tsunami looks like and, and how to avoid it. Um, it's about seven waves. And, and in the story, there are these details like uh, the, the water will recede, which is what happens before a tsunami. Um, and so they pass this down. And uh, during the tsunami, there's a 60-minute story where they, they interview one guy about it or uh, an old man who was there who knew the story and warned everybody when he saw the saw the signs because he knew the story and they all headed up to higher ground and they all survived. No Moken died um, during that wow, tsunami. That, that's amazing because I think that that tsunami killed almost two hundred thirty thousand people, and you're saying that entire tribe survived because of the story that had been passed down orally f- through thousands of years of of their traditions. Yeah, and I think that's what stories can do. Stories can give you the benefit of an experience without having to go through the experience yourself. We can all think about sort of stories in our own lives, things that our parents told us that were kind of family lore uh, that, we, that we've understood over the years. And uh, now that you say this, it makes me think about really all they were trying to do was to pass on some knowledge that might, you know, help me be uh, successful or survive in, in, in life. We sort of established that stories are an evolutionary conceit or tool that help us learn things that keep us alive. Uh, let me ask you this question. Do you think that uh, everyone is a storyteller? Uh, I think everybody has to be. <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, I think everybody is a storyteller. Often when you say story. This is the other thing that happens when you say the word story or storyteller is that people automatically formalize it in some way. So they automatically uh, think of uh, a book maybe or they'll think of, well, storytelling, it's interesting. They often think uh, children or child's storytelling or they'll think tribal. But what they don't think is that every day when they're having conversations that they're telling stories. Any play, any book, anything, it all comes really from just people talking to each other. Um, you, you barely, you can't really have a conversation without pretty quickly going into a story. And that's because stories are, are so memorable. It's because we connect to them emotionally. It's because they're how we, uh, we really learn, right? You can't go through a day without um, seeking out stories of some kind. It might be a news story. It might be curling up with a book. It might be um, uh, talking to friends. It might be uh, watching a television show, but we can't not have stories. It's almost, um, it's a steady diet. It's a constant thing with us. It's like breathing. Even when we're asleep, we tell stories to ourselves, right? It never stops. (laughs) And mine often wake me up in the middle of the night. Sure, yeah. (laughs) So, um, so if everyone tells stories all the time, uh, are there certain things that people can learn to be better storytellers? Well, the problem is this. Pretty much everyone understands how to tell a story well until they sit down to write a story. And then everything they know goes out the window because they, uh, they choke a little bit and they, they, 
They think it's got to be something different than what they do every day. Um, And so I think everybody is a natural storyteller, but I think until they learn to listen um, for that in themselves and in other people, they won't quite understand the mechanics of a story. Um, it's They're so natural to us, we don't think about it. So I've heard you talk about uh, armature of a story. Uh-huh. Can you explain what that is and why it's important? Well, I, I started working in film when I was a teenager, but when I started as an adult, uh, I was working at um, a special effects house, a creature house, a creature shop, where they made all kinds of, uh, this is the 80s, the mid-80s, and, you know, they made all kinds of monsters and aliens and that kind of thing. And so I was the low person on the totem pole. I didn't do much of that kind of work. I did a little bit, but mostly I was kind of the gopher person. And uh, I would watch these sculptors make these little maquettes, little sculptures of um, of whatever the creature was that was in that movie. And when they sculpted it, they had to put uh, make a wireframe armature. Uh, some Sometimes people make armatures out of... Uh, Sometimes people make armatures out of wood or something, but there's also something called armature wire, which is just for this. They sculpt the thing over that uh, armature. So that's the one of the most important parts of the sculpture is that armature, that skeleton that holds the clay up. Otherwise, it would collapse on itself um, after sometimes a couple of hours, certainly in a day or two. Um, and so it's one of the most important parts of the sculpture, but it's completely invisible to people there's an armature in your story and everything is built around that. And that is the idea you're trying to communicate. What are you trying to say with this story? What's the survival information at the heart of this story? So every good story is built around a clear message, a clear armature. Yes. Now, so there are people who will, uh, will they'll get their, uh, their backup about that uh, because they think not all stories have a point, but they pretty much do. Um, if you learned how to listen, you'll hear it. Often people will start their story with their point. It's just the way people talk. If you learn how to hear it, it doesn't sound like um, you're imposing something on a story by having a point. If somebody just starts talking and you don't know their point, it pretty quickly you you get bored or you get confused or you're like, what am I supposed to be listening for? You know, I often hear people say, well, can a story be about mood, right? Uh, you know, uh, can it be? It's like, well, first of all, that's not the way people talk. So, so that's a trick of literature, I think, this mood idea. And here's what I mean. If I, if I walked up to you on the street and I said, hey, Charlie, I got something to tell you, a clear blue sky, um, seagulls in the distance, uh, uh, the sound of waves crashing against the shore, um, hot sand beneath my toes, a cool breeze kind of brushing over my skin. Okay, I'll see you later, Charlie. You, you, you would say that I didn't tell you anything. But if I said, hey, Charlie, my trip to Mexico was amazing. Clear blue skies, you know, all that same stuff right? Now you know why you're listening. It changes it. Same details. Um, and so, you, because you know what to listen for. So, so what, what are some of the principles of a well-structured story? How, how does somebody organize a story? There are three major sort of pieces of a story. So uh, you would have uh, your proposal, you have your argument, and you have your conclusion. Right. So your proposal is 
Um, and your proposal is also uh, related to your armature. It's your armature. So your proposal might be, um, I wouldn't do business with that guy, right? <laughs> That's your proposal. I wouldn't do business with that guy. What's your argument? Your argument is your story. Well, one time, this, 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 this. Then I heard he blah, 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 boom, 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 right? And then, so your proposal, argument, and conclusion. Again, stories are often circular. You come back around to the beginning. Yeah, I wouldn't. If I were you, I wouldn't do business with that guy. Right. That's how you that's how you do it. That's just how people speak. So let's talk a little bit about storytelling today. Uh, it seems that there's a tremendous amount of dystopian storytelling. Uh, I was speaking to a friend who works at Scholastic, the publishing company that, that does a lot of children's books. And she was saying that almost all of their young adult fiction is dystopian. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Uh, I, I have a friend who, uh, she's actually a former student, uh, G. Willow Wilson, uh, who's a novelist and a comic book writer and a graphic novelist. And she talks about um, uh, millennials being taught all their lives, essentially, that the world's going to end, right? The global warming and all these things, right? And so... Um, and so they've been taught this all their lives. And so uh, they're preparing for this emotionally, I think, and mentally. And I think she's right about that. I think there's part that's part of it, right? Here, we're living through a pandemic right now, as an example, right? Um, that's going to shape young people in a very specific way now. And uh, they're going to tell stories in a very specific way about uh, how to survive things like this. I think that's part of it is that they are preparing for a world that uh, they've been told is very dangerous for them. And they're not, they're not wrong about that. Um, but often uh, I think they are uh, getting rid of the hope. And I think that's dangerous. Mm. They're losing hope. Oh, that's pretty profound. Do you, do you think that the storyteller has any responsibility, any sort of moral responsibility to put out stories that are more hopeful, that, that, can paint a picture that's a positive one of the future? I think that the storyteller's responsibility is to tell the truth. Look, the world's not all bad and it's not all good, right? <laughs> right? So there's always some hope. And I think it's important to, to tell the truth about that, or there's always some good. One of the reasons I think that we gravitate towards somebody like Anne Frank is that she was able to even say, that she thought there was goodness, right? That if she hadn't said that, I don't know if we'd be reading her story the same way. That becomes the lesson in that piece. That becomes the armature of her piece, that people are basically good. Yeah, so now, I mean, it makes me think about some of the needs that, that we have in this time of social, social isolation and, and fear uh, of, of the power of empathy in storytelling. Um, and its ability to bring us together. Uh, can you can you speak a little bit about that? And and by the way, I hap happen to know that there's some parts of your own personal story that that are very powerful around understanding empathy. Mm -hmm. Well, a story cannot work without empathy. It can't work. So empathy is a is a major component in storytelling. And there are techniques you can do to, to make an audience empathize uh, more with a character if you're telling a story or more with yourself if you're telling a story. Um, and the, the more you can do that, the, the more resonance your story will have. Mm. I, I watched just the um, other day this, your talk at the EG conference 
uh, where you very powerfully told the story of of your brother um, and his his murderer, and it was an incredibly powerful personal story, uh, and and really one about about empathy building. First of all, I recommend to our listeners to to li- look it up and go watch it. Um, but but would you mind sharing just a little bit of that personal story with us? Yeah, sure. So in December of 2015, my brother was uh, randomly murdered. Uh, I was walking down the street and had a, a, a confrontation that we're not sure exactly what, what it was about um, with a guy on the street, and then this guy pulls out a gun and shoots him and kills him. What what happened was um, I, I actually I got married shortly uh, after that. The murder trial started when I was on my honeymoon. So I would get these texts on my honeymoon about how the trial was going. And when I got back, I immediately went to the trial. So right from essentially, I mean, almost from the airport to the trial, kind of. I mean, you know, that day, uh, the defendant was going to take the stand. This woman, who I I didn't really know, said something when she found out this guy was going to take the stand that day. And she said, uh, now we get to hear how hard it is to be a crack dealer. And she was really dismissive. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I th- the first thing I thought was, well, I, I bet it is hard to be a crack dealer. That's actually the first thing I thought. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to listen to this guy's story. I'm going to just listen because I want to understand this person who killed my brother. I need to understand him. If he was a terrible person, that would come out in the listening. If he was a good person or whatever, what, I, I don't know. So I just listened. And it turns out this guy um, was born into a gang. His, his family were, uh, were gang members when he was born. His father um, goes to prison when he's young. His father ends up in prison. And his mother has all these kids and everything. And so what this guy does um, to help out his family is start selling drugs. Then he goes to prison for selling drugs. Uh, he decides when he's in prison that he doesn't want to go back to prison. Well, actually, while he's in prison, he learns a trade. But when he comes out, he he's not hired. Nobody will hire him. There's a study that that shows that um, that a, a a white man with um, with a uh, a criminal record has an easier chance of getting a job than a black man with no criminal record. So here's a black man with a criminal record. Um, so he can't. He learned this trade. He doesn't want to go back to prison, but he, you know, uh, he can't. He's not hired. Um, and that's legal, right? Oh, well, you're a felon. No, I'm not going to hire you. Um, but you can also be denied housing legally. You can also, um, and in fact, not only can you be denied housing, but um, uh, you are not eligible for any government assistance, meaning you can't get food stamps, you can't get public housing. And if, you're, if, you're, if your parents or one of your relatives or something is in public housing, they can lose it if they put you up. So what does that mean? You throw somebody out on the street. They have no way to make a living. They have no place to live. What do you think they're going to do? So uh, if, you, if you take all of that into account, what happened was I got very angry at the system and less angry at him. If the system had found a way to take care of him, this guy who shot my brother, my brother would be alive. So it was the empathy 
for this person who killed my brother and understanding his situation and also understanding that um, although we didn't grow up in uh, a gang situation, my brother and I grew up poor. So we were also victims of the same system, poor school district, all that stuff. Um, And so it wasn't very hard for me to imagine a set of circumstances where my brother might have ended up on the other end of that gun. And if he had ended up on the other end of that gun, I would have wanted people to understand um, his humanity. And I thought if I if I would want that for my brother, then I have to extend it to this man. So that's what I did. So that's um, and stories help me do that. It's incredibly powerful, and and you are modeling uh, the kind of learnings from stories that that I guess we we aspire and hope can come from from powerful storytelling. That is stories that can actually help to change society. Yeah, the stories change society all the time. Right. I, I um, saw a great example of this the other day when a woman from the CDC was on television and rather than quoting just stats about uh, how important it is that we protect ourselves so that we don't infect our families, she told a story of her grandmother and her great-grandmother and how her grandmother had exposed her great-grandmother to the Spanish flu Mm -hmm. and her great-grandmother had died of it and how her grandmother had had to live her entire life with the guilt and knowledge that she was the cause of her mother's death. Yeah. And you can't hear that story and not feel the lesson of that story instantly. (laughs) Right. Um, and, and not only that, um, I tweeted about this the other day, but you know, people, when they need stories, they understand exactly what they're for. When they need to communicate a powerful idea, they know they need stories. They do it all the time. All of us do it. Um, and when we are looking actively to survive, we also know to seek out stories. So, which is kind of a beautiful bring us back to the beginning, right? We're looking for those ancient wisdom stories like the Moken had mm-hmm. to help us figure out how to survive in a time of natural disaster. Uh, this, is, this is not a tsunami, but it's a pandemic. And likewise, we need to look back to our ancestors for that wisdom, for that survival information that can help us ride out this storm. Yeah. Exactly. If this happens again in a hundred years, they're going to they're gonna look back at us and see what we did and see what we didn't do. What did they do right? What did they do wrong? They're going to look at, they're going to study this the same way we're looking at 1918. Well, with that, I just wanted to thank you so much for being part of this podcast. And it's always such a pleasure to uh, get to talk about stories with you, Brian. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Thanks for asking me. It's really, it was fun. I'd like to express my heartfelt thanks to Brian McDonald for this enlightening conversation. If you enjoyed listening and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the FOSS podcast and share it with a friend. You can also find a full transcript of this conversation and a selection of links to learn more about Brian and his work by visiting the URL in this episode's description. FOST also produces a monthly newsletter that curates articles, upcoming events, and original content showcasing the cutting edge of storytelling. 
To join our community and subscribe to the newsletter, please visit fost.org slash signup. The FOSS podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented friends at Charts and Leisure. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join us in two weeks for another discussion with a master storyteller. Until then, please be safe, be strong, and story on. Mm-hmm.